Well, good morning. I'm Michael Van Gorp. I'm the student pastor here at First Baptist Conroe. And uh, thank you. Uh, I have the privilege on a weekly basis to work with 7th grade students, 7th through 12th grade students and their families, and uh, consider it a, a pure joy of mine to do so. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to preach today. However, I do feel like there's, a, I mean, it's the first weekend of spring break. Uh, there's a time change, and uh, there's a global epidemic going on. So maybe, maybe I think the rest of the staff thought that this would be the best opportunity for me uh, to maybe have the least amount of damage done today. Um, but all kidding aside, I am grateful today and uh, grateful that you guys were late for the first service, so you decided to show up for this one. So thank you. Thank you for being here today. Um, but in honor of it being spring break, I would like us to think about school this week. And uh, what I want to do is I want to take us all back to fifth grade. So we're going to skip right over high school and junior high because no one likes those, right? Uh, we're going to go all the way back to fifth grade. If, if you can't think back that far, maybe you can remember back for your children when they were in fifth grade. And you can probably remember all of the projects that you had to do. And I'm saying to you parents as well, because I'm sure you helped out on, on most of them. And one of my favorite projects when I was in school, in elementary school, was the solar system project. You know what I'm talking about? The big giant hanging doom contraption of wires and everything else, craft supplies uh, that you can think of. And I just remember going all out on this project because I was so fascinated with the solar system. And each of these planets that we learned about had the story and they had a purpose. And, and we learned that they all revolved around the sun and that our sun was just one of the stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which of course is named after the candy bar because it's so delicious. And there's all these other great galaxies that look like all kinds of crazy things that are out there in the vastness of space. And when I think back on all that I learned about space, there's one thing that really sticks with me that I learned. And that one thing, and I'm sure you've probably learned this as well, is that we are not the center of the universe. We are not the center of the universe. And, and we know this. You have probably told your teenagers this at some point after an argument uh, or, or something that was said or some sort of attitude, but do we give ourselves the same standard? Or is it just a piece of selfishness within us that doesn't want anybody else to dethrone us from the center of our universe? So I, I, love, I love living and growing up in this country just as much as anyone else, but I have to say that when we talk about the American culture and American, the American dream, it does create a sense of us pointing our inward compass towards us instead of Christ. Living out the American dream gives us a delusion that somehow we're living this selfless, thoughtful, altruistic life, but really our actions don't speak that way. It really tells a different story. It really shows us that we're really trying to make the biggest impact to bring the most glory to us. And I say this because I want to make a link back to 
the time as Jesus was entering the world, there were some similar cultural beliefs. There had been a drift, as, as Pastor Jeff kind of alluded to last week, as he was talking about the diff- when we go from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there was this period of 400 years where God remained silent as the prophets ceased to speak as we awaited for the Messiah. So as this 400-year drift happened, the people got further and further away from God's voice. And instead of letting Him be the compass that guides us, they turned it inward. But there was a voice that called out from the wilderness. and His name was John the Baptist, and he was born to prepare a way for Christ by preaching a message of repentance. But his greatest message came when he decided to become silent so that Jesus could take the center stage. So what I hope what we'll learn today together is that John's life and ministry has the potential to help us experience this mindset makeover as we begin to redefine joy and greatness and what it truly means to be joyful, what it truly means to be great, and that it would change the way that we live. Because as as we begin to shift away from ourselves and point all of our attention to Christ and let that be the guiding force, it should change everything. So if you would, turn with me to John chapter 3 this morning. We're going to start in verse 25. And what I want to do is I want to go read through verses 25 through 30 together. And then what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a definition of joy based on this and then an understanding of what John's answer is going to tell us about this joy. So if you would read with me, John chapter 3, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, He is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So let's give our new definition of joy. Joy is knowing and seeing Jesus increase. Joy is knowing and seeing Jesus increase. But that's not the definition that our world gives, is it? If you're on your phones right now, which you shouldn't be, and you looked up the word, I'll say that for the students because I usually have to call them out. But if you're on your phone right now, and if you were to look up the dictionary definition of joy, what you would see is that it tells us that it's a feeling of great pleasure or happiness. A feeling of pleasure and happiness. And really, these two things are not found in Christ, and, but these things are really found in the pursuit of me. 
And when we look at this passage, there's a couple of things that stick out that tell us that if we, if we go by the world's definition of joy, there's no reason why John should be joyful. There's no reason that we should get to the end of this and he goes, my joy is complete. Because there's several things going wrong in his ministry. So let's look at verse 25. There's this man, and he's a Jew, and he comes, and he's talking with John's disciples, and they begin this argument or this discussion about purification. Well, what they're really talking about is the validity of John's baptism. As we will see before this, if we look back, that Jesus is beginning to do his ministry of baptism through his disciples, and John is still doing his ministry of baptism. So what this guy is really asking is, whose baptism really matters? Yours or Jesus's? Well, that's not a good way to, uh, that's not good ground for your ministry when everybody's questioning whether what you're doing is even relevant. And in verse 26, we see that it doesn't just stop with this one man, but then the leadership of John's ministry, his disciples, his followers, begin to doubt. Because they come to him. And they begin asking questions. Look, this Jesus, this guy that you were walking with, you pointed him out, I know he's a big deal, but he's kind of still in our thunder. See, their joy was beginning to disappear as their doubts seeped in because they didn't know whether they had made the right decision in following John because they saw the earthly success of Jesus in the moment. When John's ministry was big, when people were coming and flooding to the wilderness to hear him speak, they were excited. When, when they came through the waters to be baptized and they got to be a part of that, it was exciting. They were filled with joy. But now those people weren't there anymore. Now people weren't coming to John as much anymore. Did they miss something? But John's answer truly flips this on its head and it shows us that there should be a different focus for our joy. So I want, I want to show us over the next three verses how, how John sets an example of joy. All right, so if we go back to verse 27, John answers a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. And what this tells us is that we can't control our situation, so our situation can't control our joy. I want to say that again. We can't control our situation, so our situation can't control our joy. See, for the disciples of John, what they were basing their joy on was the fact that people were coming to him, to John, and, and there was big crowds and that they were having success, earthly success. They were making the powers that be upset and they were looking forward to John being this great person in society and they were willing to sacrifice for now in order to gain that status later. But John's answer tells us that we can't control our situation, so our situation can't control our joy. John knows that the Father is in charge of all things, that He is sovereign, and that He has ordained this moment to happen. 
that for people to leave him and follow Jesus is all a part of the plan. That's not a surprise to John. But why has it come as such a surprise to us when tough situations get thrown in our lap? You know, maybe it's, maybe it's when a loved one passes away or we get some tough news from the doctor or, or our boss. There's no more work. Maybe it's something that happens in the lives of our kids and we don't know how to, how to jump in and we don't know how to fix things because that's what we're good at, right? We just want to fix things. But we just can't control it. But something that we, we can remember back from a few weeks ago is that God is always at work even when we may not see it. And in that situation that we can't control, that situation can't control our joy because our joy comes from outside of that and that we can rest on the promise of God. The next thing we see through John's answer is in verse 28, as he says, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. So this leads us to see that joy can only be found when we are fulfilling our God-given purpose. John was not supposed to be the Christ. He wasn't. He was supposed to be John the Baptist. That's it. He wasn't supposed to be the Savior of the world. He was just supposed to be the messenger that goes before. He wasn't supposed to redeem humanity. He wasn't supposed to save the lost. He was just supposed to soften the hearts of the people so that as Jesus spoke, his voice would speak loud and clear to hearts and would draw people to himself. But we put the same pressure on ourselves. I think about myself, and you know, I think, you know, I may be watching a, you know, if you people are baseball fans, you watched the World Series this last year, and, you know, every time the Nationals would go up to the plate, there was a guy named Juan Soto. And we were reminded by Joe Buck every time, he's 21 years old. It became a joke, and it was, and it was funny, but, you know, for me, it, it, sometimes you sit there and you think, you know, like, I'm 28. Here's a 21-year-old kid playing in the World Series. What am I doing with my life? But it doesn't have to be that, right? It can, it can be simple things. Like, I, I can look at all the, the past historical preachers, and, and you can see that they, they started their ministry when they were 18, and they were preaching to thousands. And I, I look at myself, and I go, what, what is my impact? But the reality is, I wasn't called to be Charles Spurgeon. I wasn't called to be Billy Graham. I wasn't called to be Matt Chandler or any other of the other people that you may think of whenever you, you think of the term of, of a great preacher. I was called to be Michael. That's it. I was called to be faithful to the God-given purpose that was set before me. And that's it. And John knew this. John knew that his purpose was to be the messenger in the wilderness. That's it. And because of that, 
He knew that he could find his joy in fulfilling that purpose. But here's, here, here's where we get in real big trouble. Not only when we, we put that pressure on ourselves to be something that we're not created to be, but then when we put that pressure on our kids. When we look at our children and we go, you know, you really need to step up your game because uh, you need to make me look good. You need to step up your game because you need to make all A's, because you need to get into that school that we talked about you having to go to, and you need to become that certain profession that we talked about you needing to become, because that's what success is, and that's what greatness is, and, and joy in your life will only be found if you pursue this, and we put that pressure on our children to then pursue things that they were never created for. And when we begin to play this comparison game in our lives or with our children's lives, all it does is lead to our joy being stolen away from us. Because instead of being content with our situation or with our children, then what we do is we begin to build up this idea that we're just not good enough. That something's just not quite right. And we can't rest until everything has been fulfilled that we want. Lastly, John tells us here that in verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Pretty simply, he's just trying to say that Christ is the groom, the church is the bride, so where the bride goes should tell us and reveal to us who the groom is. But then he says the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. John gives us this perfect metaphor for who he is. Who's been to a wedding in the last year? Okay, a few people. All right. Do you remember the bride and the groom? Yeah, probably. Maybe. Maybe you snuck in and you just got some free food. I don't know. Now, who remembers all the groomsmen? Probably not, right? Because the central focus of a wedding is on the bride and the groom. It's on the joyous occasion of these two being joined together. And that's, and that's what John was seeing. He was seeing the church, those that were following and called by Christ, and Christ himself being joined together. And he was seeing himself as a, as a groomsman or a best man sitting in the distance, just cheering them on. He wasn't there because his life was going to change because of this. He wasn't there for what he could get out of it. He was there just to witness what Christ was doing in the lives of people. So for us, here's where joy comes from. We have joy when we see Christ at work in the lives of others. John was the voice in the wilderness, but he gladly stepped aside to let Christ become the voice that the lost sheep needed to hear. He got out of the way because he knew that his voice only went so far, but Christ's voice was the one that would bring life. And that's what brought him the most joy, seeing people come to life. Nothing should excite us more than seeing lost people being saved in Christ. Nothing should excite us more than seeing someone who is dead being made alive. Yet we continually just try to find this joy in something else, some other sort of source, whether that's a victory on a t-ball team, 
whether that's a perfect attendance award, whether that's a promotion, something that we can get, something that we can earn, but nothing should excite us more than seeing lost people being found. And ultimately for John, what this does is it creates not just a temporary joy for himself, but it's a complete joy as he says, therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Because of these things, because of these things, my joy is not just, yay, but it's complete, meaning that he has done what he's supposed to do. But the more that Christ continues to increase in significance, the more John continues to decrease in significance, and then the more John's joy is made complete. And what a warning for us. Because I think the opposite could be true. As, as Jesus increases, we decrease. But what if we flip that? I think it works the other way too. As we increase in our lives and we become the center, then Christ's influence in the way that we see joy decreases. And therefore, our joy is not complete, but it's fractured and broken. And we're missing something. So through this, we've been given a great example by John of what joy really is in Christ. And he is a faithful and joyful servant. But I want to look at one little thing here, and then we'll close as we get to our next definition of what greatness is. What we're going to see here as we turn to Luke chapter 7 is that Jesus is going to redefine what greatness is by using John as an example. So what we're going to do is we're going to fast forward here. John is now in prison. So you can say that his ministry has completely decreased. Because he's no longer out in the wilderness, he's no longer preaching, he's no longer baptizing. He's in prison. Meanwhile, Jesus' ministry has continued to increase. The disciples have started to follow him. He has been doing many miracles. He's been preaching the message that the kingdom is here. But as John is sitting in his prison cell, he begins to doubt. Why? Because I think we've all been there before. When life seems helpless, when you felt like you've given everything that you can, when you felt like you've been as faithful as you possibly can, but then something happens. And it cripples us to the point where we can't can't focus on Christ And John's in one of these moments as he's sitting in his prison cell. And he sends a couple of his disciples to ask Jesus if he really is the one. And what Jesus does is even better than just giving a verbal answer. He actually starts healing people and taking care of people and doing all these things so that now his disciples that are going back to John not only have a verbal answer, but they have a visual answer. They're able to go tell John Not what Jesus has said, but what he has done.
And as they leave to report, Jesus begins expressing his love for John and the work he has done. He talks about, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Some fancy guy? Some prince? They, they, live, in, they live in palaces and kingdoms. No, you went out in the wilderness to hear truth. You went to hear the messenger. But then he tells us this in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Now I want to read that one more time because when I read this the first time, I, I, my, my brain glitched and you know, went into like a robot thing. I couldn't figure out what was going on because it didn't quite make sense to me, right? Verse, verse 28, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John. Not Abraham. Not Moses. Not David. Not any of the other prophets. John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Meaning that no amount of greatness, no, no amount of faithfulness, no amount of stuff we could do on this earth could amount to any sort of greatness when it comes to eternity. But true greatness is only found through Christ's righteousness. And that's our second definition. What is greatness? Greatness is only found through Christ's righteousness. You could even write this as an equation. Greatness equals Christ's righteousness. Greatness doesn't equal a trophy case. Greatness doesn't mean lots of degrees. Greatness only equals Christ's righteousness. That's the only place where it's found. As great as John was, as faithful as he was, as much as he did for the kingdom of God and making a way for Jesus to come, the least in the kingdom... The one person who accepts Christ as their Lord and Savior, who receives the righteousness from Christ, is greater than he. And we see this cool thing that happens in verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, I guess, I mean, we're always hating on the tax collectors. When all the people heard this, and even the tax collectors, they declared God just. Because they heard this and they knew how great John was and then they looked at their lives and they knew if, if John is so great, there's nothing that we could ever do. But Jesus quickly reminded them to go back to this, this whole idea that there's nothing that we could do to earn our salvation. Not even John. There's nothing that we could do to, to earn a single ounce of greatness through our life. 
But Christ achieved that through His blood on the cross. Our greatness only comes through a relationship with Him. That's it. Of course, we see here in, in verse 30 that the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by them. That's no surprise. They didn't want to give up their greatness. In their mind, they had become great. They had, they had become the political warriors. They were connected with the Roman government. They had, they had authority over their people. They had earned it. They were faithful. They made all the sacrifices. They, they you know, put their money in the bucket when they were supposed to. They earned it. They failed to see that there's no way for us to earn our salvation. God is just. He's fair. And He understands that. He creates a way for us through Christ. So, these two definitions are joy being changed away from pursuing pursuing happiness for ourselves and then our greatness instead of trying to climb the ladder only pointing to Christ and His righteousness changes everything. It changes everything. For those of you who may not know Christ or have a relationship with Him, the hope you see is the simplicity and the beauty of the message of Christ as He speaks here. That we are not righteous. There's nothing we can do to earn this righteousness. But Christ gives us the gift of His righteousness through the cross. For the believer, and this is where it gets tough. I think this message is tougher for us as followers of Christ. Because I, I think if we have wrong definitions of joy and greatness, what it does is it causes us to self-inflict ourselves with chaos. We've been talking a lot about God bringing peace to our chaos, God putting the pieces back together of our lives. But this is one area where I think that we ourselves inflict ourselves with chaos because we misplace our joy and we misplace greatness and we're chasing after all the wrong things and we're, and we're trying to find joy in all the wrong places. So this changes everything. Because if we remove ourselves from the center of the universe, then we can begin to see clearly the purpose that God has set before us. And we see what our purpose is not. Our purpose is not to get a good education or get a great job to support the family. It's not to put three kids through your favorite school on an athletic or academic scholarship. It's not to become your own boss. It's not to develop a large retirement and investment portfolio. It's not to travel the world or pursue pristine health and make 40 to new 30 and to be in your 30s and still live like you're in college. Our purpose isn't to slowly isolate ourselves in the selfishness because we earned it or to play golf seven times a week. Our purpose is not to have a second getaway home or invest time, energy, and resources into the next political leader. It isn't found in joining civic clubs in order to maintain how things have always been. 
through our means of power and authority, and it isn't found in having the best doctors until, well, you just don't need them anymore because they tell you to go home. Greatness isn't even found in how many people show up to your funeral someday. Joy and greatness are only found in Christ and Christ alone. They can only be found in witnessing the advancement of the kingdom on earth as we slowly watch ourselves decrease in significance. We've been talking about in our church this idea, this vision to begin 10,000 transforming relationships over the next 10 years. Maybe the first transforming relationship needs to be us as we transform our thinking, as we have a mindset makeover and understand what joy and greatness really is and begin chasing after Christ with everything that we have instead of our own desires. Because then and only then, after we allow Him to be the center and the focus of our lives, can we help others? We must want Him to increase and for ourselves to decrease. We must desire that. It's the first law of ministry that we decrease and He increases.